0: My name is Brett, I happen to be pastor of this people, it's good to see all of you and especially those of you who are online, welcome, glad to have you today. Uh, We are in our 38th year, actually when you celebrate your birthday you just celebrated the end of your whatever, so if you're 59 like me and, and Last December, I celebrated my 59th year being on the planet. We just celebrated our 38th year this year, this month. And so we begin our 39th, and um, really neat. It's, it's, it's hard to do anything, stay at the plow, stay in the, at the helm, be involved with anything for 38 years. Uh, you really, you, you need the grace of God in order to do it and do it well. And I don't know whether we have done it well. We have done it, but I do know that the grace of God has participated with us in just keeping us encouraged and headed in the right direction. And milestones like this, we don't want to ever overlook. Now, on the fives, we do big celebrations. So 30th or 25th, 30th, 35th, and then 40th. In two years, we'll we'll do something really big. It'll be a lot of fun. But on these, we just have moments where we acknowledge, because it's a time for us as a people to make sure that we say, God, we're grateful that you care for your church beyond our ability and competency, and that you sustain us. And and hear me, because I've been here for every day of the 38 years, every day, I know what it meant to feel like things weren't going to work out. And God proved himself faithful over and over and over again. So though you may be grateful in that you just showed up in the last six months and you found a church that you like and you can fellowship with people that you enjoy, I'm glad. I'm grateful for that and for so much more. Because I realize what I'm not and I realize what we were not. And how God has made us what we are is a miracle in and of itself because there's nothing about what I was or what we were that would make you think we would become what we have and my my hope is that the same thing would happen in the next 20 years that we aren't even close to what we should be and that what's going to happen in 2040 all of you who still plan to be around yeah 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 All the millennials say so. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be around. Uh, Gen Gen, uh, Gen Xers? Maybe. Boomers? Mm. I plan to be around. I'm a boomer. I plan to be around. Um, My hope is that we would be celebrating and thanking God for him winning this city. Um, Turn with me over to the book of... Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 138. And dovetailing what I just said, next week we're going to be receiving our Thanksgiving offering. Our Thanksgiving offering is an annual moment where we thank God for what he has done with us and what he has done for you. And uh, Thanksgiving offerings are biblical. They are, um, we didn't just make it up. They're called, they're, they're under the umbrella of votive offerings, meaning you can give them any time you wish. If you're grateful for whatever God has done, you just offer, offer something to them. And because people really don't think like that all the time, we prescribe at least one Sunday where you can do that. So next Sunday is our Thanksgiving Offering Sunday. So come ready with your contribution. The title of the message today is Prepared to Start. Prepared to Start. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Lord, help us as we study. This is probably the passage upon which Paul coined the phrase to the church at Philippi. For I am confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is probably that. There's very, there are very few things in the New Testament that you won't find in the Old. Stated differently, with greater insight, greater clarity, HD as opposed to black and white in the Old Testament. That's pretty much what it is. God's been saying the same thing from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. I'm trying to fix the planet. I'm trying to bring all things to conclusion in a way that glorifies me and blesses man. And so whatever he said in the beginning, he's still saying over and over through different means, through different ways, through different voices. But he's saying the same thing so that we can hear it. And so I think Paul probably got the idea that that he coined to the church of Philippi from this passage. Here David is saying, if you look in the prior verses of this psalm, he's praising God for his goodness and his loving kindness. He says, I love your loving kindness and your truth. They have cared for me all the days of my life. And then later on in the passage, he talks about how his enemies have risen up against him. And the Lord will not let his enemies triumph over him. And the Lord has preserved him through it. And this is where we get to verse 8, where he says, I know this, that God will make sure that whatever concerns me, he will accomplish. Now, all of this, meaning that phrase, is in the context of of being faced with an enemy that seems to want to overwhelm you and has all the capability to do so. And he says, I know something. Even though my competency might be great and there was no greater warrior than David, no greater strategist than David, nobody who could hear from God better than David about what to do in the battle, he said, I know this, that my God is the one who will do everything that is necessary to prepare me to give me success, and to bring me on the other side of this moment beyond my capabilities. So whatever I need to employ naturally, he is about concerning himself with my well-being. And he's going to bring me through this. When we started in 1982 here, we had a lot of hope. We believed that God could use us in significant ways, and we had to believe in faith that he could use us beyond us because we weren't that good. We weren't that skilled. We weren't that experienced. And I probably should 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 whittle down the we to me. Pastor Mark Hawk and Debbie had started already two churches, right, Pastor? Two churches. And so they were pretty skilled at what it meant to get something up and running. Though they had never experienced anything like Washington, D.C. And may I say, the devils in South Carolina, from which they came, they're big. But they're midgets compared to the ones here. They just don't have much influence at all. Not compared to these here. South Carolina Falls? Eh. D.C. Falls? Wow. And so all of us were entering into a moment that we'd never experienced before i had never started anything before though i was not the senior pastor mark and w were i was the the, the leader of the, the work at howard university and i'd never started a work before i had participated in a work at indiana where i was a campus minister preaching the gospel doing what needed to be done in order to see students one to christ going to howard university was a brand new thing for me Nobody laid out the welcome mat. I was not an employee of the university. I just showed up and said, I want to preach here. Will you let me? And for the most part, I met up with some degree of opposition, primarily because they didn't know us very well. We weren't a mainline denomination. We weren't a group that was well known. And they really did not allow proselytizing on campus, which means evangelizing people from wherever they are to wherever you want them to be. They didn't allow that. So I couldn't figure out how in the world they were going to allow me on campus to do what I needed to do, because the only reason I was there is to evangelize. And so I sat down with the chaplain of the university and I said, listen, I'm trying to help your students. I'm trying to win them to Jesus so that they will be better students, better, better, better kids to their parents, better citizens. Because if, if you get somebody to be a really good Christian, they are a great everything else. A really good Christian is a great father. A really good Christian is a great husband. Why? Because a a good Christian sacrifices himself for the benefit of others. He depends upon the Lord for wisdom to train his children in the way that they should go, not in the way he wants them to go. A good Christian is faithful to his wife. A good Christian is an excellent employee because he's not concerned about whether it's my job, whatever my supervisor told me to do. He just said, yes, sir, I'll help you. He comes early. He, 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 he stays late. A good Christian is an excellent friend. He doesn't backbite. He doesn't stab in the back. He doesn't talk about people. He doesn't gossip. A good Christian is a great everything else. I said, if you would let me do what I do, I think I might be able to help you get better students on campus. And uh, he said, no. No. It was one of those, you can't do it, but I'm not watching. And so we built a little campus ministry, and it was functional. And then we would bring all of our students, and there were other campus ministers around the area, uh, reaching Georgetown and Howard, excuse me, Georgetown American University, George Washington. George Mason and, and Howard. And we would bring all of our students together to do church on Sunday morning. You talk about an eclectic group of folks. Man, the students at Howard were looking at all these white kids going... And, you, you know, the students at Howard, generally, if they went to church, it had a complement of a choir with robes. And somebody with a robe who was preaching and generally doing some hooping, which had nothing to do with basketball. And, and you, had, you, you had in our church... Uh, a, a, a very wonderful white man with a guitar, <laughs> acoustic guitar, uh, from Kentucky. <laughs> and so we had an eclectic group. Everybody would say, okay, we're making sacrifices to participate in this people. And, and amazingly, we grew, not quick, not big, but we grew. And over an eight or nine-year period, we had about 180 folks that participated with us on a Sunday morning, not talking about over the continuum, but we grew to that place where we were having about 180 people. And we were really happy about that because the way we were building was hard. The cross currents of cultural expectations were there all the time. I would have to encourage the African-American kids that this is worth it because God is about to build something that's different in this city. It's not just about your comfort. It's not about uh, identifying with your culture. And many of these kids got blasted because they were going to what everybody else perceived in their world as a predominantly white church. Why are you going all the way there? You go all the way from Howard down to Capitol Hill to go to church when there's a church right on campus you can go to. There are other ones right around the neighborhood. Why are you doing that? You've got to get on the 70 bus. Anybody know anything about the 70 bus? <laughs> You've got to have faith to get on the 70 bus. Really? So we, we had to convince people that there was a vision beyond their comfort that would allow them the privilege of saying, this is worth it. And God did something really wonderful in planting a seed in the heart of this congregation that would last until today and will continue until we pass, whatever we looks like. God has done something as a result of our, our planting here That is unique in this area. Now, somewhere around 1991, I became senior pastor of the work. Pastor Mark and Debbie went to another work. Later, they would come back here as they are in the building today. But I became senior pastor of the work. And um, we'd gone through a difficult period over 18 months. I'm giving you the story to let you know how much I identify with David with respect to God will perform that which concerns me. Went through a difficult period. About 180 people in 1989. And the difficulty didn't stem from us. It was outside of us. Our parent ministry just died, quit. And it affected all of the churches around the world, especially those in America. And we went from about 180 people down to 75 by May of 1991. From November of 89 to May of 1991, 75. Um, obviously everybody's looking around on a Sunday morning watching their friends not show up and thinking I don't know if I ought to be here either it was just flat hard, really hard and then they were looking at the people who were there thinking you're going to be here next week? Uh. Mark, Pastor Mark then gives the church to me I then take the church through a, a three month period whereby I say listen I know I am... Not Mark. He's been your pastor for a decade. Uh, That's big shoes to fill. Just give me an opportunity to go out and buy my own shoes and see if they will work for you. I can can do this, I think. Give me three months. So from May through August, I developed curriculum, uh, foundations classes, theological things, presented them to the church. And I did it so well that I had grown the church from 75 to 53. (laughs) People voted with their feet said nope I thought okay we got 53 people and those 53 people were not happy and I'm counting, I'm counting babies I'm, I'm, ca- I'm, counting, I'm counting everything they were not happy people all their friends had gone and I said Lord are we going to make it starting a church is hard rebirthing a church is harder Maybe I don't, maybe I'm not qualifying those with the right metrics. But when you start a church, you're starting in virgin territory with no problems. When you rebirth a church, you're starting with people who have problems and expectations and pain. And that pain leads wherever they go. Whenever you talk to them, what's happening, pastor? Why are we going through this? Skepticism reigns and you've got to break through all the doubt and unbelief in order to find faith, it is not easy. Because I've been on both sides of helping to plant a church and to restart a church, wow, I'll do the planting before I do the restart. We had, at the end of one year, we had uh, 50, 53 people still. A different 53, but 53. At the end of two years, we had 75. I was rejoicing. I was so happy I didn't know what to do. We got 75 people. There there are 22 people who decided to be a part of us this year. Yay! That's 50% growth. Hallelujah, we're happy. And we began the process of seeing faithfulness and steadfastness and uh, endurance have its reward. And God was blessing us. Now, I was not a very good leader, and I was not a very good preacher I didn't, I'd never really preached an entire series before doing things on campus is very different than doing church campus ministry is not doing church and so though I'd preached for a decade on campus I'd never led a congregation and so I would write my sermons out and read them and they were boring I was boring it was so boring that people would tell you from the church, it's boring. That's really bad when, when folks comment like that. That's bad. I'm trying to, trying to let you know what it means when David says he's going he's gonna to perform. He's going to accomplish that which concerns me. Even if it means aside from me and in spite of me. I told God... Lord, if you ever give me an opportunity to pastor, please, I beg you, don't let the church look like me. It would be easy for me to build a church that looks like me. I'll say it differently. Easier. You you build with one culture, one expectation. We'd probably be four or five times larger than we are now. But I wanted a church that looked like heaven. that does not mean that does not mean that does not mean that homogeneous churches are somehow less than it simply means that i had a vision that kind of fell in line with paul's peter's vision build the church in jerusalem all jewish great happy If you go to Korea, you're you're probably going to reach all Koreans. Most churches around the world are homogeneous. Great! No problems. All good. But I knew what God had planned for me because I knew how I grew up. And I knew that God wanted to do something with respect to the idea of what it meant to produce ethnic harmony between people groups that were at enmity with one another. Black and white folk didn't like one another, And every once in a while it would show its ugly head in public for the most part, though it was under this cover of of, of, a a facade in our society whereby people seemed to be getting along and progress was being made. But there was a tension underneath that would only need one little event to let it, like a volcano, come out. And I said, God, I live in the environment of understanding what that tension is because it's only inside of me. But my parents raised me in such a way as to know what it means to make that tension that which can be quelled by peace, by patience, and by submitting things to Almighty God. It doesn't mean that we don't resolve the issues by talking about them and dealing with them. But it does mean that I grew up healed. And I had a lot from which I needed to be healed. But there was no smell of smoke on my life when I got around white folks or white institutions. It's not like I was the angry black man every day of my life. I was the black guy that came to heal the environment that was messed up or ignorant. That's who I was. And I said, God, I can't. It's so much a part of me. I cannot build anything that is not like what's on the inside, the architecture that you've created me me to be. So please, let me deal with this. It was one of those, you know not what you ask. (laughs) But I knew that this was a part of my calling. I couldn't run from it. And so we built a heterogeneous community intentionally and as a result we're able to address the issues of the day in ways like other congregations can't well it doesn't mean we don't have issues and and have to dialogue amongst ourselves about what reality really is but it does mean this that we do it in the context of understanding rather than enmity that we when we talk we say Okay, um, if you're a white person, uh, what should I not say? How do I not offend you? I don't want to do that because I really care. Black person, listen, I'm not going to be offended if you say something stupid. I'm going to go ahead and and work, and we'll we'll get through this because I care about you more than I care about my offense. And if I can come to the place of bringing you from an adversarial or an, an uninformed position to now making you an advocate I've now brought somebody on the side of the gospel the truth of what, about how folks ought to get together a peacemaker generally speaking Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers for they shall inherit the earth a peacemaker is generally the one in the middle that uh, gets blamed by both sides as being for the other side peacemaker never wins. The only people who win when a peacemaker does his job are the people he brought to peace. The peacemaker gets beat up in the middle. That's what, you, that's what you get when you start building a church like this. Not only do I become the central figure in terms of human peacemaking but I train up people to do the same. God please do something. Make a church out of Difficulty that can address the issues in our world. And we are, believe me, we are at many levels. We are doing it substantively. But it's not like he had the best material with which to work. I hadn't gone to seminary. I was 30 years old when I inherited the church. It's not old enough to be much of anything. I'd never pastored before. I had two kids uh, learning how to parent. My dad was living with me who was dying of cancer. I had a lot of responsibilities that were pressing on me. Maybe not as many as most, but those which made my soul a little distracted from that which I needed to build. God didn't have what I considered the best material with which to work, yet he decided to accomplish that which concerns me. He talks about his enemies. In the prior verse, he says, you haven't let your enemies, his, my enemies, went over me. And every time I confront them, uh, you seem to be my aid and my guard. Probably my greatest enemy, or our greatest enemy throughout 38 years, has been me. Well, I'm not against myself. I just don't know how much I'm not for myself my selfishness, my ideas about how church ought to be. I've made so many mistakes with this congregation. So many mistakes. Things that make me in the middle of the night think, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Somewhere in the, in the late 90s, we bought property on Pleasant Valley Road in 50, out here in Chantilly. Chantilly. Beautiful nine acres upon which you could only build four and a half because it was residential property, so he had to leave four and a half half of it as green space and we were about four or five hundred people and uh, by the time we got ready to build and, and we'd purchased a property, I had not only artist' renderings but an architect actually made a, a mini version of the piece of property that we could put up in our foyer so everybody could see it beautifully and outlined about this big and um somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half to three years and in raising money for the property every month i had to come to the church and say by the way we're, we're going to sell this property you talk about burning leadership equity you could hear the toilet flush it was just terrible. What? You've been pushing this thing for three years, Pastor. I've given up going out to dinner with my wife for three years just so I could give to this. And you are selling the property that I've given my lifeblood for? Are you? What's wrong with you? I said, I know. The reason we're selling is because we're too big for the property. We've grown larger than the property can hold. I- I'm sorry. I'm not that good. I, and that's just one. That's not even the biggest mistakes I've made. That's just one of them. So many things I've done that weren't in our best interest though I thought they were. And yet the Lord has decided to accomplish that which concerns me. We, I've hired people that I had to fire. Oh, you thought they were great. And they are wonderful people, but they didn't work out for your benefit. I liked them, but they didn't serve the church. Well, you think, oh, that wasn't a good decision. Gosh. I joined organizations as we were trying to figure out how to be incorporated with somebody because we knew we couldn't be on our own. We needed to be in in, in touch and connection with some group in the body of Christ. I joined an organization. In two years, I left the organization. I told the church, this is our people. And then two years later, that wasn't our people. (laughs) I've made so many mistakes. So many. And all you see, if you're new, if you've been here for 25 years, 30 years, you've been with me through some of those mistakes. But if you're new, all you see is what some deem as success. And I'm glad, because that's kind of a picture of what God does when he covers our life and all of our mistakes. His blood just makes it look like you've never sinned. (laughs) He just wipes out all of your bad. So it looks like, wow, this church is super successful. Oh, so many mistakes. My point is, I have been this church's greatest problem. Yet God has decided to accomplish that which concerns him. My son has been mo- he moved to the front row in order to communicate to me that my T-shirt was showing through my button, <laughs> and it took me 15 minutes to figure out why in the world he moved right there. Thank you very much. That's family right there. That's family right there. Family. Oh, you said? Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. She's taking pictures down here. That's wonderful. It'll appear on Instagram in just a minute. Yeah. The Lord has done what he's done, mostly in spite, not because of. Now, having said that, the architecture that he has placed in my soul I realize that there are few people who can build what we have built. I know it to be true because there are few places like ours. There are places that are multi ethnic, yes, different people groups, but most of them are led by people who don't look like me. Most of them are led by white folks. I'm proud of them. I was on the phone with them, <clears throat> pastors of the largest churches in the country, this last week trying to figure out how we could develop a prayer coordinated moment for this next month or so that allows for God to hear our cry as a church and answer the problems that face our world and so these large church pastors many of whom are white have 20 to 30 percent of their congregations that are black and I'm talking about 10 to 20 thousand people in their congregation and I am grateful because it means they at least are building with some degree of sensitivity. Grateful But see, black people generally have become comfortable dwelling in white environments all the time because we live there. Our workplaces are predominantly white. Our schools are predominantly white. Safeway, Nordstrom's, JCPenney, owned by white folks, run by mostly white folks. We live in a predominantly white world. We're the minority. We understand what it means to live biculturally. It's a different thing when a white person has to cross this way and call a black man their pastor. Black folks call white people their supervisors every day and are happy to do so, don't have any problem. But when white folks call a black person their pastor, they have to make a conscious choice to cross a barrier. And there are very few congregations like ours where we've got some five to 700 white folks and their children who look to me and our staff for leadership. It just doesn't happen very often. And for their willingness to cross the border, to be a part of an uncomfortable people group. It's never easy to do this. For their decision to cross that border, I wanna say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because you are sacrificing your comfort and order that something might be shown to the world about what it should look like to dwell on the planet in peace. Thank you. God has done stuff, yes, because of the architecture, but for the most part, in spite of me. Now, if we, if we keep doing what we have been doing, we will grow like we've grown. Because he will continue to bless in spite of us. But the good thing is this. The longer I've been doing this, the the more I understand what what my mistakes look like. And I don't repeat them. I make brand new ones. (laughs) But I don't repeat them. And there are fewer brand new mistakes because I'm more wise. And I get better counsel. And I, 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 I understand what not to do. And I'm much less impetuous. See, when you're in your 30s, you're trying to get stuff done now. I, I'm going to be 60 in December. I say, okay, I've been around a little bit now. I can be patient with this thing. I don't have to tell the church everything on a Sunday. I don't have to get it done tomorrow. Lord, I present it to you. We take it through our processes. We see whether it's, there's an amen from the people and from heaven. And we move forward. That might take three to six months. And I'm okay with that. I didn't used to be, but I am now. My point is, if I'm positioned to make fewer mistakes and not the same ones, we'll grow faster. We'll grow better with quality and with numerics. God will play. We are in a position like we've never been before. And that's why I, I entitled this, this sermon, Prepared to Start. Because we have not arrived. Except at the starting line. That's the only place to which we've arrived. We're just getting ready for great. We've experienced a little bit of good. But we're getting ready for great. Last year, at this moment, I talked about at the end of our fast, the plan that I had for the next couple of years. The Lord just dropped it down in my soul. It was it was crystalline, and we were celebrating our 37th. And I said, sometime around a year and a half from now, we're going to begin the process of transition, whereby the younger generation is going to take much more leadership, meaning that the millennials, those under 36, who are in our church or I don't want to put a number on it but the, the generation that is not boomer, are going to begin to take more responsibility, and in the 39th year, they're going to be, begin leading this congregation. We boomers are going to begin walking with them through it. And when we get to our 40th year, anybody understand something about 40 in the Bible? Yeah, 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 yeah. The rest of y'all need to read your Bible more. <laughs> in the 40th year, they're going to be running stuff. And remember, God called me to Washington, D.C. to help win the city. Not just to, to Chantilly to build a church. And I'm not going anyplace. I'm just broadening my footprint. And so I'm gonna be much more of an overseer than I am a pastor every day because God has called us to win the city. And I've got to figure out how in the world I can extend my leadership beyond this stool. Are you listening to me? And there are other people. Boy, these young people can do it, can't they? Oh, that's not strong enough, y'all. Listen, okay, I'll take the blame on that. I haven't trained you well enough. When I give you a, a T-ball like that, you got to knock it out of the park. You know what tee T-ball is. You know you got a little T to put a ball in there. But you can't miss it. Come on now. The young people are outstanding in this congregation. They are competent. They are anointed. They are loyal. They have our vision. They are not just parrots, but they are people who have actually put it down on the inside of their soul and can communicate it in such a way that it sounds like God gave it to them directly rather than receiving it through me. You want those kinds of people. And the last thing you want to do is hold them back. Hear me. Put yourself in this, as I close, put yourself in in the seat of the disciples. They've got Jesus for three years the best minister who has ever been, nobody better, best theologian, best practitioner, best uh, thus says the Lord guy, though he never said thus says the Lord because he was the Lord. He only said, truly, truly, I say to you, that's what it meant when he was trying to say thus says the Lord. The best of everything. And he said, by the way, I got to go. Wait, 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 You're, you're at the height of your ministry everybody's following you, thousands of people are are denying their food in order to go into the wilderness to hear you talk. They'd rather be hungry than leave your presence. And you think it's time to go? If you were to combine Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Hezekiah, kings, prophets, Moses, Joshua, judges, combine them all together with wisdom and understanding, put them in one person, they still wouldn't measure up to you. Why in the world do you think it's a good idea for you to go? No, 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 no. You stay. This is why Jesus said, uh, who do the people say the son of man is? Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? Peter chimes up, you're the son of the living God. Oh, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You're getting it now, Peter. That's great. And I want you to know after this period, they're going to take me and they're going to, chief priests and scribes, and they're going to beat me up, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die, and then rise again. And then Peter, feeling like God, the Lord just told him he was a prophet. That's what he said. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You got astray from God. You got this prophetic thing flowing through your life now, Pete. That's amazing. You're, and Peter's feeling, yes, sir, I do. Jesus says what he says, and Peter's still feeling the anointing, though it's gone. It's gone. The grace is gone. And he says, may it never be, Lord. Now, what you going to tell God no for? <laughs> may it never be, Lord. You can't go. You can't go. You got to stay forever. Jesus said, no, it's time for me to go. And it's not just that he was leaving. He was leaving a huge vacuum. These disciples didn't get anything before he rose from the dead. Nothing. They didn't get he was rising from the dead. They didn't understand why he needed to die. They didn't understand the parables that he was saying. Why do you talk to people in strange sayings? Why well, just tell them plainly. We don't understand a thing you're saying. I mean, you don't understand. If you don't understand this parable about the sower and the seed, you won't get anything I say. Well, we need to understand that you have to tutor us. They got nothing. And whatever they did get, they got wrong. And Jesus says, greater work shall you do because I go to the Father. He realized that the empowerment of the Holy Spirit was greater than their inadequacy. What they did not have, God could provide. They were not prepared as well as the people who are in this church prepared when Jesus left. And yet he gave them responsibility for the entire world. Twelve guys. Eleven really. My point is, it's never a good time for the main guy to go. Ever, generally speaking, with all the inadequacies, inadequacies and difficulties and, 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 and idiosyncrasies and, and faux pas and mistakes, people like me. You wouldn't keep coming, you wouldn't keep watching if you didn't like something that we were presenting. I get it. But it's more than me you need to like, you need to like us and what we build and realize that there is a pattern beyond my personality. I know how I present. I know how God has wired me. I know the sensitivities that I bring to the pulpit. I know the convictions that I bring to the pulpit. I realize the integrity that I try to present on a regular basis. I know the anointing. I know I sound more like a coach than I do a preacher. I realize all these things wrapped up into Brett makes Brett somewhat unique to your ears. And you like what Brett has to say. But Brett will do a better job if I can replicate myself in the lives of others rather than making you depend upon me because I plan to live here for the next 30. Plan to. But what if I can't? What if a big target winds up on my chest and the devil takes me out? I don't know how many people have experienced the surprise of death. Rarely do we get the the privilege of watching something expected happen where an end occurs. Most of the time it's, oh, they were taken too soon. What happened? It was three months and they were gone. Oh, a car accident, things happen. I don't think that's going to happen to me. I have every reason to believe I'm going to wake up tomorrow and for the next 20 years of tomorrow's. 30 years of tomorrow, so I'm drinking too much kombucha and working out every day. I am really working hard to be healthy, really working hard, so that my children will never have to care for me. My, my, my brookie. <laughs> she hates it when I call her my affectionate name. My brook. Says, Dad, you work out so hard. Why? I said, baby girl, I had to care for my father in his death. My sister had to care for our mother in her death. I don't want you to ever have to care for me. Not a day. This is your insurance policy on my life. Working out an hour and 15 minutes every day of my life. Making my body a slave so that I might finish this prize well, 1 Corinthians 9. And I'm doing it so well, my body is begging for an emancipation proclamation. (laughs) God, stop this crazy man from killing me. I plan to be around, but if you're dependent on me, you're dependent on the wrong thing. We're in the process of change. I'm not going any place. I'm just changing my focus. And I want you to embrace what we are becoming because we are becoming larger in every way with influence. And this is the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples, disciples disciples who can do what needs to be done when the primary dude's gone that's my job it is not to preach on a Sunday morning that's about 5% of my responsibility 5! 95% of my job is all week long binding up the brokenhearted, fixing my community and making disciples who can help lead the world into his glory I didn't get to point two. I just, he maintains, that's all I got to. I didn't get to the mercy part. But God, listen to me, if he will accomplish that which concerns me, he will accomplish that which concerns you. He is no respecter of persons. He's not dependent upon your perfection. He's dependent upon your availability. If you show up every day and say, Lord, I'm your boy. I'm your servant. What you want me to do, I'm going to do my best to make you happy. You do that every day, you'll find yourself on the other side of failure. Watching him do the miraculous. Success will be your portion. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace and Us as a people to walk, to live, to talk in such a way that glorifies you in all we do and say.